Parsha's Tetzav is, of course, a companion Parsha to this past week's Parsha of Truma, whereas Truma focused more on the Mishkan and the various structures that are contained in and comprise the physical body of the Mishkan. Tetzave focuses more on the Kohanim and specifically the Big Day Kahuna, the special clothing that the Kohen, the Kohanim, the Kohen Gadol has to wear when they are serving in the Mishkan. And of course, ultimately, all of this will be true in the Beis HaMikdash as well. Despite that connection and that the thematic overlap, there is something that is unique about Tetzave, not only in comparison to Truma, but in fact, in the entire Torah. And that is that in the final four books of the Torah, Shmos through the end of Dvarim, once Moshe is introduced onto the biblical scene, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is the only Parsha in the entire Torah of the last four Svarim, Shmos, Vayikra, Bamidbar, and Dvarim, which Moshe's actual name does not appear. Something that many different Mepharshim note, and there are a variety of different explanations and theories. However, I'd like to focus on one, which I think is a very poignant and beautiful interpretation, and that is the explanation that is offered at the outset of our parsha from the Alshech HaKadosh. And the Alshech is actually commenting on a phenomenon that is in existence in a very dramatic and striking way in the opening five psukim of our parsha. Tetzava, curiously enough, opens up at the end of Perk Kavzain, two psukim in Perk Kavzain, and then begins Perk Kavchet. In those initial two psukim at the end of Perak Kavzayin, in the first three psukim in Perak Kavchet, in those five psukim, the words Ve'ata, Moshe is addressed in the second person, and you, Moshe, very specifically focusing on Moshe in a very personal way, comes up and is repeated three different times. And the Alshech is very sensitive to this paradox. On the one hand, Moshe's name is omitted from the Parsha. On the other hand, there's this very strong focus, especially at the outset, on Va'ata. Where do we see that? Well, literally, the first pasuk of the first word, excuse me, of the entire parsha is Vi'ata, Titzava es Bnei Yisrael. You should command the Jewish people. You should take the special oil, Katit Lemaor, Lahalos Ner Tamid, that will be used to burn. That there should be a fire burning, a light burning in, in the Mishkan uh, continuously. The Psukim continue, as I mentioned, into the beginning of Perk Kavchet, just two Psukim later. And again, we have the phrase Vi'ata, here in the context of Vi'ata HaKrevelech Es Aron Achicha, Vazbonav Ito, Mitochbane Israel, Lachahanoli. You will now bring Aaron and his children close, and officially you will cre- create and implement the transfer. This is actually when Aaron and his children become the Kohanim, as we know them, and Aaron becomes the Kohen Gadol. That is introduced by Hashem telling Moshe, that's going to be your personal responsibility, Vi'ata. And then we have, specifically in Pasuk Bet and Gimel, we get into the specifics of the clothing, the Big Day Kahuna. Vasisa Big Day Kodesh, Laharon, Achicha, Lachavor, Lisifaris, you should now make special clothing for Aaron and his children, which will be for honor and for splendor. Vi'ata! You should speak to the various artisans who will actually make uh, the clothing for Aaron that he can serve in the Mishkan. So the Alshech is sensitive to, and as I say, notes this uh, fascinating uh, paradox. On the one hand, Moshe's name is not mentioned. On the other hand, right at the outset, we have these three times, thrice repeated, focus on Vi'ata, focusing on 
Moshe. So it says the Alshech, a remarkable, remarkable pshat. Picture Moshe's enthusiasm, he says. Unbelievable enthusiasm that he must have had, given all of his involvement, all of his leadership in building the Mishkan and everything that went into it. He was the leader. He galvanized the people to donate the funds. He appointed B'tzalel, Elihav, all the various artisans. He was the engineer, the CEO. He was in charge of, of everything. And he was even the one who brought Aaron in to, so to speak, replace him, to then be the one who worked in the base of Mikdash. Says the al think about how hard that must have been on a human level. Moshe is Moshe Rabbeinu, but he's also a human being. Says the al amazingly, Halo yischametz levavo, Lemor Mazos Oselokim Li. Undoubtedly, says the Alshach, Moshe was jealous. Moshe was in pain. How could he be anything but incredibly disappointed when all of a sudden this command went forth telling him to bring other people to be the ones who led the efforts? But Salah and then especially the fact that the Kohanim would be the ones who ran the the services in the Mishkan, and it would not be for all generations, him or his children. Moshe was disappointed. Moshe was jealous. Says the Alshech Al-Kain, daber el-libo ulanachamo, in order to speak to Moshe where he was, where he was emotionally, to comfort Moshe. Therefore, God said, v'amar v'ata, repeating over and over again, as if to say, Moshe, don't worry. Because everything that they have, everything that will be built, it's coming from you. You are the one who galvanized everything to build the Mishkan. You are the one who is who are actually giving Aaron and his children their Kedusha. Without you commanding, you appointing, you transferring, you anointing, without you doing these things, says Hashem, none of it would have happened and none of it would be able to take place. Even, don't, that's in general, says the Alshech. And specifically, unbelievable how personal, how raw this is. Says Alshech, Hashem says to Moshe, Don't be jealous of your brother and your nephews. Shem Kohanim Vloata, that they're the Kohanim, not you. Gam Shleimusamim Chayez, all comes from you. They're clothing everything. It all comes from you. What a beautiful sensitivity and incredible insight of the Alshech into what's going on here in this Parsha. At the outset of our parsha, Moshe is commanded in the beginning of Parak Chavches, Viata Hakrevelach as Aaron Achichav as Banav Ito, gather. Moshe is told, Aaron, your brother, his children, your nephews, Mitoch Bnei Israel, gather them from the midst of the Jewish people, separate them, bring them close, Lachahanoli, to appoint them, to anoint them, to initiate them in the Kahuna, in the priesthood. The legacy that now Aaron will have is the Kohen Gadol, his children as Kohanim, and eventually, for all generations, Midor Lador, the Kahuna will be passed from father to son. This is the enduring legacy now that Aaron is appointed to, as the Kahuna, as the priesthood, through Aaron and his family, is initiated. Commenting on this Pasuk, the Medrash says something quite profound, but very, very perplexing. Says the Medrash, this process of initiating Aaron into the Kahuna, by so doing, Hashem was Heralo, he was damaging, he was hurting Moshe. 
However, the Medrash continues, in order to comfort and placate Moshe for how Hashem has hurt him, Hashem then continued and said to Moshe, Torah Hai I had a Torah, it was up all, you know, just for me, and the angels up in the heavens. But I gave it to you and through you to the world. Because I had, had I had not done that, had I kept the Torah, had the people of the Jewish world not received the Torah, ultimately the world would not have been able to survive, everything would have fallen apart. But I gave that Torah, I gave my Torah to you and through you to the world. The Ksav Sofer, in his commentary to this Pasuk, says, I don't understand. What is going on? This whole measure seems to be so difficult. On the one hand, what does it mean that Herolo, that Moshe was being hurt by Aaron's appointment? Could it really mean, asks Ksav Sofer, that Moshe was jealous of Aaron? Moshe, who we are told by the Torah itself is Anav Mikol Adam, the most humble person, he can't stand, he can't fagin his brother a little kavod? Does that make any sense? Moreover, we are told that when Moshe, the younger brother, was appointed as leader, Aaron, the older brother, wasn't jealous. And now you're telling me that Moshe, the younger brother, who already is the leader, has the top job, he's jealous that his brother gets an important, but albeit secondary job? The whole thing doesn't make any sense. And finally, says the Ksav Sofer, if whatever is bothering Moshe, how does the continuation of the Medrash placate and comfort him? If he somehow has an aching heart or jealous in some level because of what, Moshe, what Aaron received, how is the fact that the Torah was given through him in any way a comfort to that? So to explain all of this, the Ksav Sofer says we have to understand in a more sensitive and nuanced way what was truly bothering Moshe. Says the Ksav Sofer, no doubt Ar- Moshe was not bothered that Aaron became a Kohen. The fact that Aaron and his children were now going to be the ones who take over the service in the Mishkan, that did not bother Moshe. He was humble. He was a loving brother. He was supportive. That wasn't a problem. However, l'chahanoli, the Medrash says on that extra word, li, to serve me as Kohanim, that it's l'doros. This specific notion, which was also initiated at this moment, that not only Aaron and his current children, but that all descendants of Aaron for all time will inherit the position of kahuna through a hereditary uh, passing on from one generation to the next, that aspect, it's that dimension, that yes, says the Ksav Sofer, Moshe was a little bit jealous of. After all, Rashi quotes in Parshas Chukas from a different Medrash that Moshe desperately, achingly, wanted his own children to inherit his leadership. At the time of Aaron's death, the Medrash says, Hashem instructs Moshe to comfort Aaron and to tell him, you have an aspect, you have a dimension of a legacy that I'll never have because your children will inherit your position as Kohen and Kohen Gadol, respectively. But my children will not inherit my position of leadership. In other words, Rashi and the Medrash and Chukas are telling us that in this very real way, Moshe was human. Moshe was real. And like any normal parent who wants to bequeath and pass on his hard-earned accomplishments and successes to his children, so too Moshe wanted that. Moshe wanted his children to be able to inherit his positions of leadership. But for whatever the reason, only Aharon got that. Therefore, says Aksav Sofer, Moshe understands now in this Medrash, you're right, I, will not, I want it, and I am jealous. And in that sense, Herelo, Aaron's getting something that I really wish I could have. I wish my children could ha- have this. But they won't be able to. After all, 
the crown of the kahuna, the keser kahuna, can be inherited through hereditary from generation to the next. However, the keser Torah, the crown of Torah, doesn't automatically pass on. It cannot be bequeathed automatically. Just because a father is a Tamil Chacham does not automatically make his children Tamil Chachamim. However, explains the Ksav Sofer, by Hashem introducing the idea of Torah as the comfort, as the Nechama, to the fact that Aaron has a legacy that Moshe never will, it's not just that Hashem is explaining why Moshe's leadership can't be bequeathed automatically to his children as opposed to Aaron, but much more deeply and more powerfully, Moshe is being taught, says Aksav Sofer, that the very thing that you want so desperately, that you think only Aaron has, you yourself will have. Just like in a certain sense, Aaron Lomace, Aaron will live on forever, live on through his children and their continued service as Kohanim, so too, says Aksav Sofer, you are also going to have the same legacy that Aaron has. You will also live on forever. Through who? You should know that your legacy is as, not only as great as Aaron's, it's as it's greater. Because you will also live on forever. Not just through your biological children but through all Jews, including Aaron and his children, and all Jews throughout all of history, anytime they're learning Torah, anytime they're living Torah, anytime they're observing Torah, it's all B'schus Moshe. That's all Moshe's legacy living on. Moshe will live on forever, not just through his children, but through all Jews through all times. And in that sense, Moshe has the greatest legacy, not just his biological children, but every Jew and for all time. What greater legacy could there be and what greater comfort could there be to Moshe Rabbeinu? The opening of our parsha begins with the mitzvah to kindle the lights of the menorah every single night in the Mishkan and eventually in the Beis Hamikdash. As we read, and we get the specifics of what type of oil, what type of fuel is appropriate for the menorah. Shemen Zayas Zach, Kasis Lamaor, special clear olive oil crushed for the illumination. Chazal explained, Rashi quotes, it has to be the purest and the choicest of oils. And what is it for? Lahalos Ner Tamid, that there should be a continually lit flame in the menorah. And as Chazal explained in Rashi quotes, that means Kalayla Valayla Kari Tamid. You would light the menorah every single night if the light and the candles lasted into the morning, that's fine, but the mitzvah is to light the candles of the menorah each and every night. The rabbis in the Medrash, in the beginning of the Medrash Rabbah on our Parsha, this is Parsha Lamed Vav, Siman Gimel, delve into the symbolism of the menorah, and specifically the symbolism of the Ner Tamid that's mentioned in our Parsha and our Pasuk, the symbolism of the candle. And I think very interestingly, if we look here in Simon, excuse me, Parsha Lamed Vav, Simon Gimel, it seems as if the Medrash is giving three different uh, metaphors, three different symbols and symbolic meanings, each of which is different but beautiful, to the metaphor of the menorah and specifically of the candles. The first uh, uh, opinion in the Medrash assumes, as pretty much all of the points do in one way or another, that the menorah and the light refers to Torah. The Medrash asks, How is it that this is the appropriate symbol for Torah? In what way is the Torah 
lighting up the life of people the way a menorah lights up the light lights up uh, the room that it's in. So the Medrash explains that this is comparable to a person who is going on a trip, going on a journey, and doesn't know where he is going. And because of that, he is constantly tripping over things, banging into things, uh, falling down, matzah evin, minikashalba, matzah biv, nofelba, etc., etc. And the reason he keeps on hurting himself, of course, is because he has no illumination. He has no idea where he is going. However, if a person would have illumination, if he would have a lantern or something to light the way, he could avoid all of those problems. Says the Medrash, that is the image of the candle, and that is the image of Torah, and the message we are supposed to take from that. Says the Medrash, most people intend well. They want to do the right thing. However, if you don't learn Torah, if you have no Torah, you're simply not going to know what the right thing to do is, and therefore, accidentally, but inevitably, you're going to trip over things, you're going to fall, you're going to commit all sorts of sins. But if you have Torah, if you've studied Torah, then you'll know what the right thing to do is, you'll know what the mitzvahs are, you know what Hashem wants from you, and then you will be able to avoid all of those problems. So the first interpretation of the Medrash is that the Nair refers to Torah, and the benefit in the message is purely pragmatic. You simply can't always guess what the right thing to do is. It's impossible. The only way to avoid all the inevitable and natural pitfalls of this world is to study Torah and understand what Hashem truly wants from us, and then you can navigate the complexities of life. However, the Bedrash continues and suggests a second answer, uh, here actually invoking the famous Pasuk in Mishlei Perak uh, Kaf, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. In what sense is the Ner somehow connected to the Neshama of a person? Says the Medrash quite profoundly. Amar Kadesh Baruch Hu, Yehei Neri Biyadcha V'Nercha Biyadi. Ve'ezu Nero Shal Kadesh Baruch Hu, Zu Torah. So Hashem says, so to speak, make a partnership. You do for me, and I do for you. You hold my candle, I'll hold your Torah. Your, I'll hold your candle, excuse me. And what is the candle of Hashem, says the Medrash? It is Torah. But specifically, as the Pasuk there in Mishlei continues in Perak Vav, Ki Ner Mitzvah, the Torah, or, what does that mean, Ner Mitzvah? Kol Misha Mitzvah, Hu Ki'ilu Madlik Ner Baruch Wow. Says the Medrash, by us doing mitzvos, in some way, we are lighting a candle, we are benefiting Hashem. We have taken Hashem's candle, so to speak, and kindle it. In what sense? So it seems that the Medrash is getting at that uh, by doing Hashem's mitzvot, we bring Hashem's light into the world, we bring God's presence into the world by our behaviors and our good behaviors, ethical and ritual, but if we do the right thing, we bring God's presence into the world, we are, so to speak, bringing His candle into the world. And what does Hashem do for us? What's the response? How does he? What's the reciprocity? How does he reciprocate? Says the Medrash in continuation, Hashem will repay us by uh, giving life and uh, breathing life and extra life into the person's soul. And here we have something very interesting, that on the one hand, now the focus more is on doing mitzvot, not just studying Torah, that's the idea of the candle, but here it's not the practical benefit, but the spiritual benefit. The fact is that when we do mitzvot, says the Medrash, that is mechayen nafsho, that gives life to us. It's a spiritually refining process. We are enlivened, we are enriched, we are bettered, we get new life when we do mitzvot. When we do the right thing, when we're on the right path, we're in a spiritual groove. So it's not just what we're doing for Hashem by doing that, by bringing Hashem's light to the world, 
but it's like a boomerang, and that light reflects on those who do the mitzvos, and in fact gives us light, gives us energy, gives us extra life, not just light. Last but not least, the Medrash seems to have a third and final opinion, and the Medrash says something very powerful. It says that often people have a Yetzir Hara not to expend themselves or spend their money in either way to give of themselves or of their property to do a mitzvah. After all, the Yetzir Hara says to the person, why spend the money on this mitzvah? Why give tzedakah to other people? Better you should give just to your own children or do things for yourself. However, your Yetzir Tov, the better angels of your nature, says the Medrash, tell you no. Just like a nair, if it's lit, a candle that's burning, you could then light a hundred other, a thousand other candles, and orbim koma omeid, you have not in any way diminished the light of your candle, that's almost a magical property of a candle, you can give away the fire to so many others, so too when you do mitzvos, in no way will it hurt you. Anything we give of ourselves or our money to do mitzvos, the Torah promises, you will not be hurt. When the Torah introduces the command to weave and create the special big day kahuna, the clothing that will be worn by Kohanim generally and the Kohen Gadol specifically when they perform their service in the Mishkan, we are told in the beginning of Perk Chavchet, first in Pasuk Bet, Vasisa big day kodesh laharon achicha lechavod ulusifaris. Moshe is told that you need to make these clothing and for what purpose? Lechavod ulusifaris. In order to be uh, for glory and for splendor, they should be beautiful, they should be elegant, they should be dignified. However, in the very next Pasuk, in Pasuk Gimel, when the artisans, the Chachmei Leiv, are instructed to and specifically how to make and weave these specific garments, there the Torah tells us, What? When the artisans are to be instructed, it's the, the reference to the honor and the beauty and the dignity of the clothing, that is not mentioned. Rather, a different purpose is communicated, and that is to sanctify and to serve Hashem. There's a role of Kedusha, of Lakacho, that's the purpose of the Begadim. In the Sefer Penine Das, which is a collection of uh, thoughts on the weekly Parsha from Elia Meir Bloch, the great Rosh Yeshiva of Tells, who is also a profound thinker and a leading um, Musser thinker. So he asks the obvious question, which is why the shift in focus? Why does the Torah emphasize the appearance of the garments? when speaking to Moshe, but stress their ultimate purpose and functionality when speaking to the artisans, when giving instructions to the Chachmei Leiv. Why two different uh, foci, and why is the transition, the change, whether it's our own, excuse me, whether it's Moshe, or the artisans who are being spoken to. So in order to uh, share and introduce uh, the answer that Rav Bloch offers, I'll just give as a kind of introduction by way of analogy. Whenever you have some great invention, technological invention, it could be a car, it could be the iPhone, uh, there are really ultimately two components to that. First and foremost, and primary, is the function, whether it's of the phone or of the car. You need brilliant engineers who spend enormous amounts of time you know, thinking on every little detail that's kind of, you know, in the background of this machine in order for the, to make this machine or the device work exactly and perfectly towards its intended goal and purpose. But at the same time, even if you accomplish that, as hard as that would be, uh, you could do that in a very clunky, um, 
unattractive or even ugly way, but then who would want it? Who would buy it? And therefore you have a whole second group of uh, people, usually, uh, who focus not on the function, but on the design, that it should look elegant, that it should be beautiful, sporty, whatever look you're going for. It's not enough just to have the function. There's also the appearance and the design. With that background in mind, Rav Bloch says that in a somewhat similar way, Lahavdil, both components were necessary for the big day kahuna as well. But he explains in a very important and subtle way the difference between them. On the one hand, in terms of function, just like the Mishkan itself, whose ultimate function was to serve as a vehicle for Hashras, Hashchina, for bringing down Hashem's presence more manifestly and more intensively in this world, not that we can fully understand that on a human level, but nevertheless... That is the goal as best we can understand it, that the Mishkan is to bring down Hashem's Shechina and presence. So too, says Rablach, that is also the ultimate purpose of the Big Day Kahuna. The Kohanim work in the Mishkan. It's their job to service and work in the Mishkan to bring down the Shechina. And they can only do that work when they are wearing the proper garments, the proper clothing, the Big Day Kahuna. As the Gemara itself says, The Kohanim are only fully operational and fully sanctified to work in the Mishkan when they're wearing their clothing. That being said, explains Rablach, to achieve this purpose, the begadim, the garments, needed to be made exactly and perfectly according to Hashem's specifications, always keeping that ultimate goal in mind. To serve their intended function, it doesn't matter how they look, how beautiful or not they are, but they need to be done exactly the way Hashem, who's the ultimate engineer in the sky, as it were, has designed them to work perfectly by his design. Do we understand exactly why, for the purposes of Hashem's ultimate goal of bringing his presence down, the begadim need to be this way or that way? No, on a human level, we don't understand that. But we assume that the great engineer in the sky, the one who's designing this uh, machine, so to speak, in this process, he understands what needs to go into it, how it needs to work in order to achieve its purpose. That is the goal of Lakacho Ul Chahanoli. And therefore, that is important that the garments be made exactly keeping with the engineer, so to speak, Hashem's directions for their function to serve and the Kedush to be obtained. And that would be enough. However, Hashem understood that ultimately it's not that simple because the clothing, if they were too modest, even though they might work, but it would be ultimately a failure. Why? They had to be beautiful and dignified because the appearance of the Begadim may not have mattered for the spiritual ultimate reality, but they certainly mattered for the human reality. It wouldn't make a difference to Hashem what the Begadim looked like, how pretty they were, but it certainly would make a difference to the Kohanim because, says Rav they were the ones who had to wear and work in these garments. And human nature is such that we take far more seriously those things which are associated with special and beautiful clothing. To ensure that the Kohanim would consistently and constantly recognize the significance of their avoda, it was necessary for them to wear elegant and dignified clothing. And therefore, explains Rablach, we had two goals. There's the functionality, to bring down the Shina, but the need for the design to be beautiful and elegant so that the Kohanim would truly take their work seriously. Therefore, says Rablach, in the first pasuk, excuse me, in the second pasuk, when it's telling the artisans what to do, no mention is made of the beauty, because that's not necessary for them. On the contrary, they need to be focused 100% on the inner and inherent Kedusha and the purpose of the Begadim. The instructions given to the artisans, therefore, who would actually weave the Begadim, needed to only relate to their spiritual function. L'kacho l'chanuli.
However, the first Pasuk, when Moshe is commanded, he needed to know what the ultimate purpose and goal is, the bigger picture and the other objectives. Moshe, who would then communicate with Aaron and his children in the Kohanim, he needed to understand and stress their appearance so that he and therefore they would appreciate the importance of this L'chavod Ulasifaris. This year we are blessed, but honestly also challenged, with the somewhat rare occurrence of Purim falling out on Friday, on Erev Shabbos. And this raises a number of practical questions, as well as a halachic question, of when to best have the Purim Su'uda. So, in order to understand how what the halacha should be and what the preferred practice should be on a year like this, where we're making Purim Su'uda on Friday, Erev Shabbos, we need to understand the general uh, discussion halacha about when the Purim Su'uda should be, any year, and then we'll understand the different approaches for when Purim Suda should be this year. The Gemara Megillah and Daf Zayin Amud Beis <coughs> learns from the pasuk of Yemei Mishte Vesimcha, which is mentioned towards the end of Megillah's Esther, that part of the Takana of Mordechai, Esther, uh, and the Sanhedrin of the time, in order to commemorate and celebrate the miracle of Purim, was that they should have a Yemei Mishte Usimcha. And the Gemara derives from the phrase Mishte Usimcha, that there is a mitzvah, an obligation to have a Purim Su'uda, that is the Simcha we celebrate by having a festive meal. Of course, the issue of drinking on Purim, which is not our topic today, but that is what is included in the word Mishteh, Mishteh Simcha. There's supposed to be a Purim Su'uda, which is very festive and exciting and happy, which includes Mishteh, which includes drinking. However, the Gemara also points out that the first word in that phrase, Yimei Mishteh Usimcha teaches us that the mitzvah of Sudas Purim, and we similarly derive for all of the mitzvahs of Purim, Mishlach Manos and Matanos of Yonim as well, the mitzvah specifically starts during the day of Purim. If one were to have given Mishlach Manos or Matanos of Yonim yesterday, even after nightfall, even though it was already Purim, you weren't Yotze. Similarly, if you had the Suda last night, you were not Yotze. It has to be on the day of Purim, Yemei Mishta Usimcha. But that then leads into the first major question which is when during the day should you have it. And if one looks to the uh, Sfarim in the later Rishonim and the earlier Achronim, it appears that there were, at least in Ashkenaz, two different minhagim. Uh, this is brought down in a number of Sfarim, including in the Trumas Hadeshan, where he says that many have the Suda towards the end of the afternoon, in the mid to late afternoon, and their Suda spilling over even into the night of the 15th of Adar, till Motzi Purim, or what we typically call Shushan Purim. However, says the Trumas Adeshin, the Minag and Ashkenaz, in his personal Minhag, was that you should have a Suudas Shachris, which certainly sounds like it is in the morning, doesn't have to be first thing in the morning, but let's say before midday. Uh, in the earlier Achronim period, the Shalah Kodosh actually is very, very strong, and very adamant that the Suda should preferably be in the morning. He doesn't like the practice of having the suit in the late afternoon. After all, he says, if you have the suit in the late afternoon, people will be busy and potentially even inebriated. They won't daven marev correctly or at all. They won't say kriyashma. Furthermore, he assumes, I'm not exactly clear why, but he assumes that the Suda is patterned after the Sudos that Esther made for Achashverosh, and he thinks he has a proof that those took place in the morning. And perhaps the best argument from a halachic perspective, we know in general when you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, we prefer alacrity 
over delay, zrizim makdimin lemitzvot, we should always try to do mitzvot as soon as possible. So says Hashla Kadosh, he thinks we should have the pseudos in the morning, which was one of the practices that we mentioned previously in the Trumat Hadeshan. As of now, we've seen two approaches, one could say even two extreme approaches, either have it early in the morning or dafka later in the afternoon as Purim starts to ebb away. The Maharil suggests a middle position, and in fact, this is how the Ramah paskins, and this is certainly the prevalent practice of Ashkenazim uh, to this very day, and that is that we should daven mincha as early as possible, the period known as mincha gedola, which is about a half an hour after the halachic midday. So daven an early mincha, so you've daven that with a clear head, and then start the suda in the earlier part of the afternoon, and that way you have plenty of time to have the suda, hopefully even have a very festive time, and you still hopefully, if you are careful with how you uh, calibrate your uh, festivities, shall we say, there's certainly plenty of time, and hopefully you'll have a clear head later for Marev uh, and Kriyashma in the evening. So that's in general the different approaches. I don't know too many people who have a suda in the morning generally, but it is what it was a very common minhag in Ashkenaz. Some people have it in the late afternoon, and other people try to have it in the earlier part of the afternoon. What about in a year like this now, where we have the complications of Friday, getting to, getting ready for Shabbos? So aside from the practical logistic issues of getting ready for Shabbos, we have a halacha that Shulchan Aruch brings down in Simon Reish Memtes, that in general, every Friday of the year, you're not supposed to have a big meal on Friday, uh, because that's not considered Kavot Shabbos. Why is that not Kavot Shabbos if you have a big meal on Friday? So most likely because you'll fill yourself up and you won't have an appetite to have a Suda Shabbos and it's a mitzvah to have Suda Shabbos so we don't want you to already fill yourself up and have all your delicious food on Friday you won't have an appetite for Shabbos food others say if you have a big meal on Friday you'll forget to prepare you won't have time or others just say more fundamentally you're not supposed to have a meal that in any way is equivalent to the Shabbos meal just as a matter of principle Shabbos should be the best meal of the week be that as it may that's the general halacha however the halacha recognized that there are all sorts of exceptions to the rule of a sudas mitzvah. Sometimes there's a mitzvah to have a suda on a Friday, and you have to have it, and we want to have a festive suda because of that mitzvah. For example, a good example would be if a bris comes out on a Friday, the minag is certainly to have the suda and even have a festive suda, and even though it's not typically what we would allow on a Friday, that is considered permissible because of the mitzvah. However, the Ramah and the Aruch HaShulchan, Mishnabura, others, all say that even though we allow a sudas mitzvah on Friday generally, but you should try to have it in the first part of the day, in the morning, so it doesn't run into Shabbos, and certainly does not, uh, as I say, take away your appetite uh, for having an exciting uh, Friday night meal. So if that's the case, how does that translate to this year? So the Ramah, Consistent with his own opinion, Lishitaso says on a year like this, you should have your Suda early in the morning on Friday morning, and that way, even though it's a Suda Smitzvah, you can eat and be merry, but that way, hopefully by the time Shabbos comes later in the evening, you will have a full appetite, be able to have appropriate Shabbos meal. And that is what I definitely recommend. The Shulchan Aruch does bring down the other possibility of having um, the Minhag of starting this Purim Suda very close to Shabbos, and then when it gets dark for Shabbos, you cover the challah, you make Kiddush, uh, you daven, and then you continue on with your Suda. But it seems to me that that has a lot of halachic questions, and it's clear from the post scheme that that's really only Bidi I recommend having the Suda in the morning.